my favorite thing about Nietzsche and, and uh, is this thing that he has a uh, phrase which is actually a contradiction it's become what you are so you are something but you need to become that thing and i think therein lies the contradiction of self knowledge this is how i am but then growth i'm going to be something different later and the the reason i'm going to be something different later is because i fully embrace who i am now so this is a bit of a contradiction but i really love it i think it describes that experience that we all have uh, as you say of trying something failing uh, maybe maybe it was too deep maybe that was the wrong pool for you maybe that was the wrong ocean for you to swim in so just kind of you know but don't stop uh because to stop is to die right so you just keep going um and you just have to i think there's that self awareness of i am bigger than this experience uh and i don't have to tough it out i don't have to put on a brave face i'll just like embrace this because at the end of the day i know i'm bigger than it in today's episode my conversation is with Neil Durrant. Neil is an adjunct fellow at the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney with research interests in applied ethics, specializing in Nietzsche studies, friendship, as well as practical philosophy. Does stoicism have a problem? Stoicism has been around for thousands of years, but does it have a place in modern society? The study of Nietzsche might have some answers to these questions. In this conversation, expect to learn why Stoicism may be flawed in its teachings, how the teachings of Nietzsche might offer a tough love but effective solution to all of this, the power of self-awareness, how people can use these philosophies in your daily lives to deal with hard times, the true meaning of God is dead, and much more. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. This one was super interesting because... We try to put a light on the comparisons between Stoicism and the teachings of Friedrich Nietzsche, but on more of a practical level, I hope there's a lot of people who are listening to this who will take uh, some value out of this conversation, especially when you're building something, you're trying to get something off the ground, you have goals in mind, and they may not necessarily be coming to fruition as as what you might think. So this is just more of a conversation to help guide the way for all of you and help with those hard times, those tough times that we all experience in our lives. I hope you like what you hear. And if you do, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Neil Durrant. Look, I wanted to just provide a bit of perspective before we get into the conversation because the stuff we're going to be talking about is going to be quite interesting. It's going to be philosophical. It's going to be hopefully practical. But I think for the audience, it's going to be quite enlightening for them, I hope. A lot of them are in interesting positions. They could be creators. They could be entrepreneurs, founders. But I think a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about today is going to really focus on helping them figure out who they want to be, but also hopefully make them happier at the same time. Mm. So mm. with that, I wanted to sort of dig right in into understanding a little bit about what the work that you've been involved in. Um, 
Do you want to just give a quick background on who you are, the work you've been involved in, and we can sort of unravel the onion, so to speak, as we start to get into the conversation about stoicism and, and beyond? Yeah, sure. Look, I have a slightly unusual um, backstory. So I might, if I start at the present, I mean, right now I am the Faculty Executive Director for the Faculty of Arts at Macquarie University, which, um, while it's in a university, it's not an academic position. I run the business side of a very large, large faculty. But along, alongside that, I'm also an, an adjunct in the Department of Philosophy within the faculty here, which means uh, following uh, receipt of my PhD and publication of my book, uh, which came out in January, I sort of have this academic life that runs alongside my professional life. Um, so, but how did I how did I get here? So this might sound a little bit surprising, but about sort of 17 years ago, I was an ordained Anglican priest in the Anglican Church of Australia. And I was working in the ministry, I had been a Christian for, for all my life, basically. But essentially through reading philosophy, particularly the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, but also other philosophers like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus and others, I, um, I, I sort of got into this point where I was questioning, I had been questioning for a number of years my beliefs and working full-time in the church, I just sort of got to a point where I couldn't reconcile my intellectual questions with my spirituality and so I essentially became an atheist and had to change careers really, really suddenly. Um, and what happened then was I was extremely fortunate in um, beginning work in the higher education sector in the sort of professional capacities. I sort of went on to... Um, to do a Master of Economics, uh, and then after that started my PhD in Philosophy and Applied Ethics. And really what that PhD was, was picking up those thoughts that led me to the sort of fairly radical change of life circumstance to try to really research them as an academic and sort of really get into an intellectually robust state of mind. Um, and sort of belief system, if you like. Uh, so, and I had through my training for the ministry. I'd studied, uh, could read and um, and parse ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. I was a linguist before that in a former life. I studied linguistics. Um, so I had a lot of familiarity with the ancient world through that um, kind of study uh, to be a minister. So then, you know, if you fast forward again back to today, uh, I, have, I have published my PhD, which was in near Nietzsche's uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's use of ancient Greek ethics. So it sort of ties those two parts of my life together. And, uh, you know, more, most recently I uh, published an article, as you've seen in the conversation, about Stoicism, uh, about modern Stoicism really, but also a bit of a reflection on, on ancient Stoicism and how we can relate to those ancient philosophies as contemporary people. From a very high-level I want people to understand, I think Stoicism has been very, very popular. Um, obviously, mm. you've, you know this as well in modern times because it speaks to uh, a lot of people, especially who are suffering from very erratic emotional states who yeah. are trying to find balance within their lives. But there's also the Nietzsche part as well, and, and obviously that's derived from Friedrich Nietzsche and a philosopher mm. himself. Mm -hmm. and uh, much, much more recent than 
the Stoics in ancient Greece. But mm. do you want to just give a high level of the differences between Stoicism and Nietzsche, just to sort of lay the land for everyone to understand? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Stoicism, Stoicism is one of sort of four main schools in ancient Greek philosophical thought. Uh, there's the Stoics, Cynics, the Platonists. Um, so, and the way that worked in ancient Greece, and we're talking about a few hundred years, so it sort of did change over time, um, but was essentially that these were practical schools. So philosophy today is often thought about as sort of ivory tower, you know, academics theorising about obscure things. But in ancient Greece, philosophy was very, very practical. If you belong to a school of philosophy, the sceptics or the cynics or the stoics, that meant that you lived a certain way. You could tell a cynic uh, just by walking past them in the street because they'd be dressed a certain way, they'd look a certain way. Um, and so it was a very practical approach to the best way of living was these different schools of philosophy. And there's, a, there's an academic called Pierre Hadot who's revisited this idea and tried to correct this thinking that philosophy is really, really out of touch, sort of 12 feet off the ground kind of musings about spiritual things. I mean, actually, the roots of philosophy are very, very practical. What to eat, how much to sleep, who to be friends with, how to fall in love. You know, these are all sort of things that philosophy was always grounded in. And Stoicism is one of those schools. Um, it started with a philosopher, a fellow by the name of Zeno, who was a merchant. Um, and, you know, there were, there's, there's other significant Stoics. Marcus Aurelius is one of those. Epictetus is one of the late one of those. So these are the names that are thrown around a lot as the, the key people in Stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy, I mean, there's uh, Ryan Holiday, is a person who's really made Stoicism very, very popular, distinguishes between sort of small s stoicism the way we if you talk about in life about being stoic you often talk about being you know, sort of tough and not feeling things and standing against the wind and kind of that kind of stiff upper lip kind of thing that's small s stoicism but bigger stoicism is about the beliefs the system that this school in ancient greece uh, developed and there are features to it so that um, one of the features is about how you respond to um, difficulty in life, to hard circumstances. Um, and part of that is about uh, this idea that uh, if you are injured, like if someone steals something from you or if someone insults you or is mean to you, that the injury is actually more in your interpretation of it than in reality. So it's in your mind. If you could think differently about it, that experience, then you wouldn't feel so injured. Um, that's one of the key planks. And another one, and I'll stop talking in a minute, Barry, but another one is, um, is this uh, dichotomy of control. It's one of the things which is related to this injury problem that I've just spoken about, which is to say the Stoics were very, very strict on this idea that well, what do you really control? Um, because if you want to be happy, you have to focus uh, on what you can control in order to allow you to become happy. And you really control very little. Um, you control yourself, your decisions and actions, and you control how you feel about things. And so instead of allowing yourself to be unhappy by things that happen out there, um, really focus on your character, your, your virtues as a human being. And if you focus on your own internal character, not worry about the things that are outside of your control, then that's the path to happiness. 
So, I mean, that's some of the features of Stoicism that I would point out to uh, an audience that's interested but doesn't necessarily have all the academic background. Why do you think that's the case where people like Ryan Holiday and a lot of other proponents of Stoicism, they it's become so popularized to the point where there's Instagram channels, there's videos, mm. there's books being written on it. Is, it. is there something to say about the current state of society and maybe the implicit suffering we're all going through right now and why perhaps people may look happy on the outside but deep inside they're not? Why Is there something to be said about the current state of where we are right now in, in the world? Yeah, uh, possibly. I mean, Stoicism has been popular for a long time, though. So I, I get that it's got this particular media popularity at the moment through the social media sort of channels that we have. But Stoicism, it would be questionable to me whether Stoicism was really ever unpopular. Uh, but let's put that to one side. I do actually think that there is something to our current circumstance that is uh, sort of speaks to the relevance of Stoicism. And I think there's two parts to it. One is, you know, a lot of our societies or uh, sort of Western societies, for want of a better word, are becoming kind of post-religious societies where 50 years ago in Australia, uh, a lot of people would have indicated they were Catholic or Anglican. Uh, I think in the most recent census, uh, people indicated that their uh, unaffiliated non-church going was the largest portion. And that's the first time that it happened. So you do see this move away from religion um, in our society. And that, for all its um, disbenefits, one of the benefits of a religious framework is that it allows, gives you a framework, a way of thinking about life. It gives you very clear guidance as to where you fit in the world and what's important, what's not important, what's good and what's bad. So with that sort of evaporating, I think people are looking for guidance, they're looking for structures. You know, you see it in all this, like, three rules for this and Jordan Peterson's, you know, 12 rules for living and people want a very simple set of statements that uh, tell them what to do, what's the best way to be in this circumstance or that circumstance. And so without religion to provide that, I think people do look to philosophy. Um, it's the next, you know, sort of second cousin to or first cousin to theology is philosophy. So I think um, people go there to look for those answers. That's one part of it. The other part of it, I think, is um, the question of how do we deal with our inner lives? I, th I think uh, with a, a world where we increasingly have, you know, leisure time, we're not down the mines, you know, working 16-hour uh, shifts and, and dying at a young age, uh, as might have been in the industrial era, we're sort of in this post-industrial era knowledge economy, there's a lot going on in people's heads and people are a lot more aware of what's going on in their heads and a lot more time to reflect on who they are as people and, and how we feel about the world. And I think this creates a difficulty for us, which is there's actually a lot of internal distress that people experience when you have time to stop and think about it. And so how do we deal with that? How do we relate to our own inner distress. And I think Stoicism provides a particular answer to that, one that I have uh, deeply disagreed with, but it does provide some answer to that, uh, into dealing with uncomfortable internal feelings. And you've mentioned already two things, balance and happiness. Now, we can debate those. I'd like to debate those with you later. But I think these are things that, that people look to the wellness movements for, they look to philosophy for. How do I find those 
those things. So I guess that's, you know, I think that goes some way to explain the popularity of philosophies like Stoicism. I think there is this notion of people are scared to be with their own thoughts and yeah. they want to be distracted by mm. work, um, external factors. And that's why a lot of them don't like to be by themselves or they don't like to, maybe, you know, meditation is one of that where you're just really mm. closed off from the rest of the world. And when you start to get into those types of situations, it becomes scary because mm. a lot of um, feelings come to the surface. There's this, in, you know, living between the U.S. and Australia and on the U.S., there's a lot of legalization of, of you know, cannabis and, you know, mm. a lot of uh, psychedelics over there. And I hear that, uh, you know, the experiences for those types of folks is that taking those types of psychedelics releases um, some sort of inner being that really becomes their true selves. And mm. they see, they feel a lot of anxiety when they are on a trip or something like that. And that becomes both a good thing and a bad thing. I think obviously that's a, notwithstanding the, the psychedelic side of things, there is something, um, you know, psychological that's happening. And maybe there's a lot of stuff that's suppressed and a lot of reason why people are trying to seek comfort in something like stoicism and learn yeah. a bit more about what stoicism is all about and continue to perpetuate uh, that sort of mindset. But having said that, though, you know, you mentioned obviously there is a few things that you don't disagree, you do disagree with for stoicism. Mm. So let's go back to the other side of the coin and understand a bit about Friedrich Nietzsche and maybe mm. let's learn a bit about who he was um, and what mm. his thoughts were on, um, you know, his philosophy. Yeah, okay, sure. So Nietzsche, he was a, a German philosopher writing in the second half of the 19th century, so sort of active from 18, sort of, 70s to the eight, late 1880s was his most active writing period. Mm -hmm. And he, he was an interesting uh, uh, guy. I mean, I think one of those geniuses that deserves a lot more recognition and I'm trying to do my bit to, to help him be recognised for his contribution. But he, uh, he was uh, one of the youngest, well, at the time, the youngest academic to be given an uh, ongoing pr professorship in Germany. He was 23 when he got his first professorship. And he had a, an academic career for a couple of years, but then uh, illness sort of overtook him and he couldn't perform as an academic. What In Germany, though, uh, at that time and still today, these are sort of semi-government positions being an academic. So he was entitled to a stipend for the rest of his life. Um, so he stepped away from his academic work, still received an income, and that meant he just sort of walked around Europe for 10 years or so. And as he walked, he took notes in a little notebook and um, then he published those uh, over time as he, as he could. So we have this set of writings from his academic life. Uh, I don't really like those very much. They're not particularly good, but he got better as he, as he went on. And um, he ended up writing sort of five or six books that are really written in these short texts, mainly in short texts, aphorisms, uh, which is to do with him writing as he walked. Uh, they're quite disconnected. It's hard to piece them together into a coherent philosophy. Some people have said... There is no coherent philosophy there. It's just a bunch of random thoughts. I disagree with that. Um, but he, and he worked through this philosophical positions until uh, roughly 1890, 1889, where he had a sort of mental breakdown and then spent the last 10 years of his life in convalescence, not speaking very much. So kind of a tragic figure in a way. Um, 
but he he wrote some some pretty incredible things. What I like to say about Nietzsche is because a lot of there's a lot of things about his philosophy that I think are wrong, but when he's right, he's kind of devastatingly right, and he just he can really open your mind to different ways of seeing things. So. So that's a bit about his biography. Um, his actual philosophy is very, very hard to distill. But let me um, give you a couple of things that have always struck me. I mean, one is he has a an atheistic stance. So he's one of those people that talks about, I mean, he's famous for declaring the death of God. And what he meant by that is that this idea of a God who is in control, who sets the moral rules by which we live, who has some feelings about us, good or bad, depending on whether we're sinners or saints. This is a controlling idea that has developed as uh, developed with European society, and he thinks that idea has had its day and it needs to go. So that's, so that's one of the, the, the features of his thought. Sort of related to that, though, is he says, well, you know, if you can't rely on this idea of God to give you guidance for living, we also can't rely on social norms. So he has a huge sort of um, part of his philosophy is critiquing what he calls the morality of custom, customary morality, which is to say we've just kind of got used to living a certain way, um, but there may be better ways to live. And the only way to find out those better ways to live is to try stuff, to be fearless, experiment with your life, he calls it an immoralist philosophy. <laughs> what he means by that, I think, is to really know what works for you, you have to try things, and you're going to do things that don't work for you. You might have an idea about something that's immoral, but you've never tried it. And from a Nietzsche's point of view, it's like, well, try it. Maybe you'll find out it's not as immoral as you think it is. <laughs> so he's very much into this experimental, open, highly individualistic approach to life, to say, get out there and live the way you want to live. He calls this becoming who you are and becoming what you are. That's your life task, to become what you are. But you can't rely on anyone else to tell you what that is. So the only option you have is to throw yourself up against reality, experiment, and see what sticks. And so this is... Um, it's been critiqued as too individualistic. It's like, uh, you know... Do what works for you. Don't worry about anybody else. And that's what my book was there to help address. That's not true. He does have a very clear understanding of human beings as social beings. But he's also very clear that you've only got one life. It's seven. It's a 70-year-long biochemical experiment. And it's going to start and it's going to end. And um, you really have to uh, be very clear about why you're doing what you're doing and what you're pursuing. And he gives you some thoughts about that, uh, about how to live that sort of a lifestyle without giving you moral rules to follow. So with the, obviously that famous saying you mentioned, God is dead, mm. that is more of a positive stance than a negative, I would presume. And reading from various writings of him, it mm. seems like when you when we talk about God is dead, it's not necessarily... Um, trying to make you frightened or scared of the world, but it's actually telling you to embrace it, in fact, because because God is dead, therefore you can you have nothing to lose. You don't have to strive towards some sort of divinity where you can just throw darts on the wall, see what happens, mm. try mm. to experiment, see what happens. Is that 
the real positive side of of yeah. uh, Nietzsche because there is, I feel like there's also a sense of embrace suffering, and mm. the embracement mm. of suffering can be deemed in both a positive and negative way. What's your thoughts about? So, because no one likes to suffer, so how can someone embrace suffering but still live out a healthy, worth uh, fulfilling life? Okay, there's a lot there, Barry. Let me go back to the beginning about the death of God thing. I think, and, and whether it's positive or negative, the, the one thing that people often miss when they look at Nietzsche's declaration of the death of God, is that he wasn't the first to declare the death of God. In fact, the death of God is declared in Christianity. That's what Jesus did when he died. On, I mean, in Christianity, the theology is Jesus Christ is God incarnate and Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So God died on the cross to save his creation from its sin. That is fundamental Christian theology, that God died. I mean, Easter's coming up, right? So, and this is a mystery within Christianity. How does all this work if it's really God? So, But this is something that the early theologians wrestled with. So when Nietzsche says God is dead... He's kind of just trying to reframe something that Christianity has at its core, that God died for our sins. So he's saying, oh, look, you guys are right. God is dead. And it's these churches that are now his tombs where he lies entombed. And what he's actually pointing out is that um, the legacy of Christian morality that hangs over us, that's what's dying. Um, And so... Uh, it's it's a very ironic, dark, humorous kind of take on Christianity when Nietzsche says God is dead. That's the first point I'd make that people frequently miss when it comes down to Nietzsche's philosophy. Um, the other thing I would say is, yes, he sees it as empowering and freeing. Um, it's sort of like a terrifying freedom. He has this... Uh, this um, Word is sort of a metaphor that he uses a lot, which is about we've, we've, when God dies, what we've done is we've wiped away the horizon. We're, so we're now on an open ocean. We're unanchored. We're untethered. And there's no horizon. All you can see is C, 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 he says. So this is at once kind of invigorating, exhilarating. You can go wherever you like. You can navigate to whichever dark corner of this ocean that you would like to navigate to. But on the other hand, you are untethered. There are no, there's nothing to hang on to. Um, that, so and that's terrifying as well as exhilarating. And he just wants to acknowledge that and say, yeah, it's terrifying. And that's the existential reality that we live in. But also uh, there are ways that you can make that experience, that existential isolation from God. There's ways you can make that work for you. And that's where this idea of moral experiment and immoralism comes in, which is to say, well, Firstly, you need to develop a very clear understanding of who you are, of your own drives, what you're composed of, how you react to the world around you. And then, having established that, you can try to organise your world so that the bits about you that you want to promote, you can promote, and the bits about you that you want to diminish can diminish. So he sort of has this idea of organising. You can't really work on yourself directly. What you can do is understand yourself and then organise your world so that like a plant in a greenhouse, you grow in a certain direction. So that's his, his sort of fundamental understanding of what we do in this untethered world is self-understanding leading to, to growth. Now, uh, your question about suffering and distress. 
So my take on Nietzsche, and it's not uncontroversial, but my take on Nietzsche is that he is very uh, matter-of-fact about what it means to be human. There's no such, the word ought or should, these are the two words that I just, Nietzsche would never use. So he's, you know, if you feel a certain way, if you feel distress, you feel suffering, Nietzsche would never say you shouldn't be suffering. If you feel anger, he would never say you oughtn't feel angry. If you feel hatred, he would never say, oh, hang on a minute, you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel that. He would just say, okay, that's a fact. You feel this way. All right, where do we go from here? Um, so he's very practical in that way of looking, how do we take these aversive, what I call aversive emotional experiences, contempt, disgust, hatred, shame, all of these things that we live with that are just baked into being human, instead of saying they shouldn't be there and then trying to organise your world so they're not there, he says, well, no, they're, they're just there. That's what, it's being human. So how do you benefit from them and how do the people around you benefit from them? Um, that's the question. That's the hard question. So he doesn't seek to eliminate suffering. He just seeks um, pathways for personal growth from suffering. So, okay, so here's a question. So if Stoicism promotes this notion of equanimity of mm. I don't, I'm going to be unaffected by the world, how the world treats me and my reaction mm. to the world. And so if I'm treated badly, that's because I'm interpreting it that as treating badly. And mm. ergo, I'm going to have to adjust my emotional state and not get angry or react in the way that I, um, in a negative way. But with Nietzsche, he's saying you should, you should embrace all of those feelings. If you feel mm. hate, feel hate. But then mm. how do you, you then alluded to the fact that Nietzsche said, look, if you are feeling hatred, where do you go from here? And so what are some of the ways that you can deal with hate, for example? Because hate is such a, such a vice in this world. And everyone yeah. is saying, why are you getting so angry? You shouldn't be so angry. You should be positive, optimistic. But if mm. someone can't help themselves being angry because of, you know, friends, family, things in their lives that, that, that are not giving them the joy that they want, how mm. do you then interpret that hatred and convert that into something positive or should you even convert it into something that's positive or just continue to be hateful? How, how do you work with those emotions? Yeah, no, it's very good. You, you picked the hardest one. Like hate is a very difficult topic. I've done a lot of reading about the psychology, sociology and philosophy of hatred in order to try to understand this topic. And clearly there's a lot of hatred that is, let me just say upfront, you know, I would say destructive, very, very destructive and particularly in the in when you read about the psychology of hatred, it's in-group, out-group hatred. That's particularly, you know, you say that you belong to this group, you know, you're, uh, you're you're black or you're Asian or you're white or you're a female, and so because you belong to that group, I hate you. I mean, that's Nietzsche would not contemplate that. He'd just say that's idiocy. It's just being really, really stupid, and it's going to harm people. It's going to harm you. So just you know, find a different way to relate to people that aren't in your group. And his way of, of relating to people that aren't in your group is to celebrate and validate difference. He's kind of like, okay, you're different to me. You're not in my group. I've got, I've got a lot to learn from you. It's kind of his approach to difference. So let me just say that up front. But let's just take then hatred as an interpersonal experience. So not an in-group, out-group thing. There's just an individual person who you know quite well 
And there are things about them that if you were totally honest with yourself and you didn't have this moral fear of the emotion of hatred, you would say, look, I really hate that. I mean, it's very clear from a neuroscience point of view that love and hate basically live in the same part of the brain. They're two sides of the same coin. And often the people that you hate the most are the people that used to love the most. That's a clear thing that happens in um, love relationships gone wrong. So, so what is this strong emotion about? For one, a lot of people that I speak to refuse to acknowledge that they experience hatred. What they say is, oh, no, I don't hate them. I just really, really, really intensely dislike them. I'm like, okay, well, we're using different words, but let's face it. It's what it is is a very, very strong aversion to another human being. You want that person out of your orbit, out of your experience. Now, that can lead to violence, which I would not condone. I would No, that is just a stupid way of dealing with it. You're going to injure yourself. You're going to injure other people. But maybe there's something about that aversion that you have that you need to listen to, right? You go, I have this very strong reaction. I want to get this person out of my life. How, what, you know, I think there's a role, it's a very energizing, very motivating emotion. When you feel it, you're like, I've got to do something about this. And what that is, is I've got to make my life better, right? That's kind of the flip side of it, right? I, I need to change my life because I'm having this very strong reaction to this person. So it mightn't be that you remove that person from your life. It might be that you think very deeply about yourself. You go, oh, look, I'm having this very visceral hate reaction to this person. What is it about me that's, that's getting that response? I need to really, I need to go back to the drawing board and think about myself and, and, and what, how, how am I composed? And can I change that? Is there something I can do about my circumstances that would actually allow me to feel differently in this circumstance? So listen to your hatred is one thing you can do. What is it telling you? And maybe it's telling you, I can't remove that person from my life, but I actually need to get out of this situation. An example might be you yeah, get a new boss. Uh, I've got a new boss. I really like him. I get on really well with him. But other people I know, they've got a new boss, and they go, I just can't do this. I have this visceral hatred of this person. Okay, well, you can try and work with that for six months, nine months, but if it's not working out, you're probably going to need to leave. You know, And so that's listening to that that emotion that you've got, I think is very important. Just saying, oh, I shouldn't feel that way, that's not going to get you anywhere. You're missing a huge growth opportunity. <laughs> so I would say instead, listen to it. The same with other aversive emotions, disgust, contempt. These are all things that are telling you something. So my advice to people is lean into it. Don't don't be violent. Don't be horrible to people. You know, just but lean in and just feel that emotion, and the more you sort of allow it to percolate through your system, the more you will learn about yourself and the more you'll see opportunities for change for the better. So wouldn't you say that because of that, there is a potential overlap with Stoicism in some respects because doesn't Stoicism say, or doesn't it at least the teaching of it say, look, if... I'm feeling um, hatred or this very strong feeling uh, towards someone, then mm. one, I need to acknowledge it, but two, then be able to say, well, I need to lean into it as well, but have that equanimity side of things where I'm not going to 
react in an abrash way, but also having the tenacity to understand and be self-aware that I am hate, uh, I am suffering from this feeling, and I need mm. to change it. Or do you think that there's a clear dichotomy between uh, the teachings of Nietzsche and Stoicism when it comes to those types of uh, innate feelings from, from yourself? I mean, there's a clear overlap. I mean, Nietzsche has positive and negative things to say about Stoicism. Um, he's clearly indebted to Stoicism in some ways. And one of those ways is to say, well, um, you know, you can't just react to your emotional state. You need to be reflective, considerate in terms of what action you take. So, yes, there is that overlap, but there is a very, very big difference. So Stoicism, uh, in fact, almost all of ancient Greek philosophy uh, apart from a few smaller schools, has this goal of what they called ataraxia, which is a, a state of inner serenity and calm. That is the goal. And so the way you relate to your aversive emotions or your other positive but strong emotions, you know, joy, attraction, desire, the opposite of the, these aversive ones we've been talking about, love, is you, you, don't, you don't go all the way with any of them because... What they do is throw you off balance. What you want internally is a state of serenity, calm, and peace. That is not the Nietzschean approach. That's not my approach. You, you will never get that. It's a hopeless goal. Uh, you will never experience it. And a lot of people experience despair because they can't get to that inner uh, state. Some people can, sure, you know, and that's the group of people that um, aren't my audience. <laughs> the group of people that are my audience is the people that struggle with that. Now, they have a very turbulent in a life. And I would say, don't aim for, I mean, to me, this permanent state of calm and serenity feels like being dead or being inhuman. What, what, let's not set that up as the goal. You are going to be buffeted from day to day, from week to week by strong emotions. You'll be elated one minute, sad the next. And my thing is, don't sit there saying, oh, you know, I'll feel buffeted by strong emotions. Say, I'm alive. I'm experiencing these things. It's fantastic to be experiencing these things. I don't want these feelings to go away because I'm learning through that inner contest all the time. Um, so there's that big difference. The goal is not serenity or peace or balance. The goal is to fully inhabit everything that you experience and to drain every last moment of it for everything that it's worth. Okay, so I definitely agree with that statement. But if someone is experiencing these swings in emotions, this excitement, this love, this hate, mm. and a lot of the positive movement, a lot of the positive feelings are sort of um, taken for granted because everyone wants those feelings. But when they get into the opposite end of that, where they feel despair, um, hate, suffering, obviously people aren't aware that they should be embracing life and this is what life is about, I think it sounds like someone needs to have a bit of self-awareness first before they mm. can really appreciate that these mood swings, these feelings that I have is normal. It's something that mm. I, I want to embrace, but I at least have to be aware that I'm going into these uh, peaks and troughs of my life and then being able to say, look, I, from afar, and have this sort of third person looking above me saying, look, 
he's going through a lot of stuff, but that's what life is all about. But I don't think a lot of people in the world have that context around them. They're just sort of, they're they're within the trees and not looking for the forest for the trees. And they're sort Mm -hmm. of in the minutia of things. So how does one get out of that state to understand, Mm -hmm. look, if you are to be more self-aware at the end of the day? Yeah, so the, uh, just to draw another Nietzsche idea, um, he has this idea of the pathos of distance. Uh, he has this metaphor about climbing high mountains. And um, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he has this wonderful passage where the idea is to climb to the top of the mountain to get some distance, you know, some perspective on, on the world around you. But then at the top of the mountain, the goal is to go outside your own head so you can look back down on yourself and kind of just see things for what they are. So I think that's what you just said then, Barry, is really true, that you have to develop a sense, one, that uh, difficult emotions are not everything. You know, you can go for an hour or two or a day having bad emotions, they will pass and you will feel differently. So don't act uh, wildly on the basis of those emotions when obviously there are some things, you know, self-harm comes to mind, there's lots of... Uh, things that people can do in response to their strong negative emotions. And I would say, yes, you need to have a certain level of maturity and self-awareness to say, to be able to say, I'm having this experience now and I'm going to inhabit this experience, but I know that I am, A, more than this experience, that my life is more resilient than this experience and that um, there is a sense in which uh I, by leaning into it, I will get through to the other side. And so the action that I take needs to be kind of moderated by that whole perspective on this experience. And I think it's true to say that through, I think partly through the social isolation that we've experienced through the pandemic for one, on the one hand, but also through living through our screens on the other hand, we've lost that sense of being encapsulated in a network that is um, very resilient. So people think about resilience or strength that often as like, a, in my mind, it's like a stick, a very strong stick, but you, you break or you don't break. I think there's a lot more resilience in the idea of a net. Uh, you know, the guy that jumped out of the, the highest ever from the stratosphere, did that four-minute free fall and he fell into mm-hmm. the net. A very, very strong net, right, obviously, to stop someone going at 1,000 kilometers an hour. But it just balloons, you know, and all the fibers in the network take a little bit of strain. And it's a very, very powerful thing. And I think through our social isolation, uh, we've become individually and socially less resilient because we're putting all that on ourselves and we become sticks that break. Whereas really by connecting in to the network around you, the network of other people around you, you become a lot stronger like a, like a net. So I think, um, yes, you need all of that maturity and that resilience that's not just your resilience, it's the resilience of your system, uh, the network that you're a part of, in order to deal well with very strong aversive emotions. Um, That said, um, if you don't have all of that, what's the best response? I still don't think the best response is you shouldn't feel that way. I think the best response is to say, oh, my God, I'm really struggling with this aversive emotion what I need to do is plug in to the network because that will provide me with resilience that I don't have. And what I need to do is step back a little bit uh, from this, as you pointed out, and, and sort of see that this is a moment in time. And an hour from now, uh, two hours from now, a day from now, 
a week from now, I'll probably feel differently. So I think all of those things are important, and I'm not certainly not recommending every time you have a flash of emotion to just go all the way with it. Um, I think that's a recipe for disaster for a lot of people. But I also think we shouldn't be um, – we need to be authentic about who we are, and we experience all of these things. So let's just, as you said, let's normalize it. I think a great example of someone adding, um, reacting abruptly is getting cut off when you're driving. And yeah. <laughs> just, just the amount of hatred you have for someone you never met, for someone yeah. you have never probably saw, and it's just objectified, uh, personified by this car. So, but it's, it's an interesting point you make about plugging into the network you mentioned in, is that sort of another way of saying you've got to meet people, you've got to connect with people and don't be isolated because mm. being isolated can be really, really tough, especially when you go through the worst times of your life. You know, is that yeah. something to be said about how we interact with each other and, and building friends, building a good network around us to sort of take us through these bad times and, and good times as well? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, another theme that I work with a lot in my work and my research is around the relationship between selfishness and other concern or self-concern and other mm -hmm. concern. A lot of the time we have that as a dichotomy in our minds. You know, we sort of like selfishness is bad. It's either really bad or it's really good, right? It's like self-care, self-compassion, self-love. That's all really important. But being selfish, really bad. I want to go, look, that's really incoherent. That doesn't make any sense at all. And then you've got the other side of it, which is, you know, give to others. The people that sacrifice the most are the most honourable people in our society. You know, it's all about self-sacrificing, giving to others. That's where you find true meaning and fulfilment in life. And I want to say, no, that's where you find you run out of steam and energy and emptiness, and that's not actually the, the answer is to empty yourself. Well, it's a very Christian idea, but I don't think it's a good psychological idea. So I think what we need to do is put those two things together. Th these are not self, self-concern and other concern are not opposites. In fact, one of the most important ways that you can have available to you to look after yourself is to invest in others, to put time and energy into others. The more you invest in, in your relationships, make those strong and healthy, healthy, by healthy, I mean, able to, to deal with contest, able to deal with difference, able to deal with negative and positive. Um, relationships that are all positive and all, all you know, sugar and spice and all things nice, I think are not particularly healthy. Um, so by investing in others, you're also investing in yourself. And conversely, by investing in yourself, you're also investing in the quality of your relationships. So the more we see these things as complementary, as part of the same system, uh, the better off I think we will be. We quickly go into some of the um, arguments or sort of reasons, um, you know, the, the balancing act between Stoicism and, and Nietzsche. You mentioned mm. in one of your writings passivity, equanimity, and injury mm. contradiction. Can we just explain a little bit about what those three mean and how do they relate between the two? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, the pass passivity problem is this idea that um, – uh, it's, it's in that dichotomy of control kind of space of saying, well, um, you know, I, I don't control something outside of myself, outside of my own feelings and reactions and thoughts. And so, therefore, 
um, I will focus on what I can control as my path to happiness. And that, I think, can lead to a certain passive attitude to some of the things that happen around you. Now, yes, the Stoics had a focus on justice as well. And, um, you know, I need to think a bit more about that, how I incorporate that into my approach. That was pointed out to me by an academic after my conversation article. I thought it was a good point. I, there's more work I need to do in thinking about that. Uh, my initial reading of that is that that's quite a platonic, moralistic idea of justice. So then that would cause problems for me. I'll have to think very carefully about my response to that. But the passivity problem is, is kind of um, this issue of I should only focus on what I can directly control. I think it's a very narrow view of the world. Um, one question I have is, do you really control your inner life? I mean, stoicism relies on that. You control your judgments. You control your feelings. There's a lot of evidence to suggest actually we feel first and think later. So you're not really in control of your responses to things. So that's a problem. But the other thing is you also exercise a lot of indirect control, what people would call influence on the world around you. If you understand the world clearly, you can do things that then have knock-on effects and knock-on effects and knock-on effects. So actually it's not a bad thing to think about the world out there and the, and the outcomes of the, in the world out there, even though they're sort of out of your direct control, they're not actually out of your complete circle of influence or control. So I think that's a bit limiting that aspect of stoicism. Um, equanimity we've talked about a lot. I mean, already in this interview, the goal of utter serenity and calm in the face of anything that life can throw at you, one, completely unrealistic, two, not really desirable because it's not a very human way to be. Um, so I've got a, a problem with that. Um, and the injury problem is this idea that, um, well, if someone um, steals from me, uh, I should change my judgment about that. The universe lent that object to me in the first place, so I shouldn't feel bad about that. Um, but then it also says you shouldn't steal from other people. I'm like, Look, that's a contradiction because I should feel free to go and steal from it. If that's what my judgment's telling me to do, I'll go and take your iPad. If you feel bad about that, that's just your judgment, mate. Like, you just need to think differently about me stealing your iPad. So... I just don't think that works. Um, so uh, I think it's much better to allow us to feel injustice. If someone steals my, um, I've got a Subaru WRX, if someone stole my car, I love my car. I would feel terrible about it. I'd be angry about that. I should be allowed to feel that. And Stoicism kind of says, oh, well, you know, you're wrong to think that car was yours in the first place. It's not true. It is mine. And I will feel terrible if somebody stole it. So I just think, you know, it's this sort of level of psychological kind of unrealism that sits within stoicism and this internal contradiction. You apply these rules to yourself, uh, but you don't expect them to apply to others. So how does that work? Um, is, yeah. So that's some of the issues that I have. And I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche's approach uh, sort of opens the door on a, a less on a much freer, more human, more realistic response to these situations. So if that's the case, then how does one go about, and I think we spoke about this, navigating the world. I think right now there's a lot of people who are sort of you know, in a bad situation or they mm. could be dealing with a lot of ups and downs. Death could be um, you know, financial issues, business, growing their companies, um, the economic downturn of downturn obviously is playing a lot 
in that uh, in that field. So, how do you? What's your advice to people who are trying to navigate this complex world on how should they feel? You know, is there a recipe? Is there a step-by-step process where one who doesn't know anything about Nietzsche or Stoicism, but they just mm. they just want to know the high-level stuff. Like, I just want mm. to make sure that I'm aware of my surroundings, mm. but it's not necessarily of feeling happy at the end of the day, but feeling that I can I can go through this. I can work through the problems. I can mm. go th- and, and understand because I don't think it's about being happy at the end of the day. So how do mm. you speak to those types of people yeah sure look i mean uh i think it's well my response to this yes i think it'd be good to be able to have clear simple guidance for life but also life isn't that straightforward so we need to apply ourselves to think these things through i do actually have eight things that i've derived from nature um that are kind of my uh, i call them nature's unspiritual exercises it's actually what I'm hoping to write my next book on uh, because it's this idea of what are some practical things that we can take away from a philosophy like Nietzsche's that will allow us to sort of live, um, you know, the way we want to live. So it's things like, so I use metaphors that Nietzsche has. It's um, walking, gardening, climbing, sailing, laughing, dancing, and playing. These are the things. And I think... You know, you can think about each of these separately. You probably have time to go into all of them now. But walking is put the basics in place. Eat well, sleep well, exercise. You know, you're a 70, 80-year-long biochemical experiment. Um, and so you can tweak the inputs and outputs of that to get very, very, very predictable results. My running coach tells me, uh, you're, you know, you've got a brain. Took that out, take that out. Your body is a dumb animal, and I can make it do whatever we want it to do. You can run a marathon, uh, you know, if you want to. So I think there's those basics in life that is the walking side of this. Treat yourself as a, a physical, embodied human being, and really work at those basics. Gardening is about your inner life. Think of your inner life as a bunch of as a garden of wild things, and you want to prune here, and you want to put some fertilizer there, and you want to put some bug spray there. But you need to know what your drives are first, and think, okay, well, I want these ones to flourish, I want these ones to diminish, and so I need to adapt my greenhouse so that the right ones grow, and and so on and so forth. I probably don't have time to go into the other six, but I do think there are these kind of very practical ways that we can think about living it can be derived from a philosophy like Nietzsche's I just wanted to say one thing if I could go back to your first part of your question I understand a lot of your audience are business people and entrepreneurs and people sort of trying to make it in in that sort of sphere and one of the things I think here is again taking the shoulds and the oughts out of it so you know failure how do we think about failure and there's this narrative that says oh well you know, um, be bold, don't worry about failure, don't be afraid, and also particularly don't fear or make sure you don't feel shame if you fail. Because I would take a slightly different approach to that. I would say, no, you need to be afraid uh, because that's your signals, right? All the dangers, all the risks, all the things that could go wrong. And if you're staying up at night worrying about your business, that's good because you're listening to the fear. Not good over 20 years, obviously, but in the setup phase, maybe that's what's required. The other thing I would say is if you fail, feel shame. Like really lean into the shame. Like let people tell you over and over again how you messed up and you should have done this, you should have done that, you got it wrong, 
blah, 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 because shame is one of those aversive emotions. There's a lot to learn from shame. And if you avoid that feeling and you avoid those conversations, then you're not, you're going to miss massive growth opportunity, I think. So I think, you know, we, we often hear this kind of in this very blokey kind of manosphere way about taking risks and being strong and, you know, I'm going to go and I kind of want to say, well, I think there's a different way of doing that, which is to actually, uh, when you take those risks and they don't work out, like fully embrace that, fully mm-hmm. wear it, uh, because then you'll have learned everything you possibly can from that experience to take into the next one. Ties back in with the whole notion of it's it's perfectly fine to have these feelings of leaning mm. into the shame, leaning into the guilt and the ups and downs, but also having that self-awareness as well because there's a lot mm. of people who will lean into the shame big time and then the shame will cripple them and mm. they won't know what to do and they'll never do it again. But that's not the mm. point. The point is to learn from those experiences and be able to rise up again and try to again, cut back on that proverbial horse, if you will, mm-hmm. and, you know, see how it goes. Because I guess there's a lot of people out there who are scared, you know, they've tested one thing and they've tested the waters and it's too deep and they just want to go back out again. So mm-hmm. I think it sounds like with Nietzsche, there is definitely an element of truth because you do want to improve, you want to learn and embrace every aspect of your life, but then you want to learn as well. And I think the mm. learning part is really crucial to that. And, you know, again, speaks to the idea of having yeah. the, the ability to, to know who you are and, and, and where you go. Yeah. It's a really, I mean, my favorite thing about Nietzsche and, and uh, is this thing that he has a uh, phrase, which is actually a contradiction. It's become what you are. So you are something, but you need to become that thing. And I think therein lies the contradiction of self-knowledge. This is how I am. But then growth, I'm going to be something different later. And the, the reason I'm going to be something different later is because I fully embrace who I am now. So this is a bit of a contradiction, but I really love it. I think it describes that experience that we all have, uh, as you say, of trying something, failing. Uh, maybe maybe it was too deep. Maybe that was the wrong pool for you. Maybe that was the wrong ocean for you to swim in. So just kind of, you know, but don't stop uh, because to stop is to die, right? So you just keep going. Um, and you just have to, I think there's that self-awareness of I am bigger than this experience uh, and I don't have to tough it out. I don't have to put on a brave face. I'll just like embrace this because at the end of the day, I know I'm bigger than it. Last one, what is the future? What's beyond Stoicism or Nietzsche, if anything else? Is there a new emerging philosophy that's the balance or the between the two or is one leaning towards one school of thought versus the other. How do you see these types of philosophies permeate society in the next 15, 20 years? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I think um, in Stoicism, uh, there there is this movement to sort of address the deficits of Stoicism. People like Donald Robertson and Massimo Pagliucci, these are people that are writing updated versions of Stoicism to take out some of the... Um, belief systems that we wouldn't subscribe to usually these days. So, and to update them with more scientific and technological understandings of human life. So that, that could go somewhere that could be quite useful. Um, I think in the world of continental philosophy, existentialist philosophy, romantic philosophy like Nietzsche's, um, you know, Nietzsche isn't 
really such a big thing in the academic world, and I think he's often under-recognised. So there's a, there's a movement afoot to sort of bring his philosophy back. It, it, there's a lot of... Um, baggage that goes with Nietzsche. You know, he was, his philosophy was co-opted by the Nazis in the early 20th century. Uh, he does say some things that are pretty misogynistic and racist. So, you know, you've kind of got to unwind the core of his philosophy from those things. So it's difficult work. Um, but where I think this can go, I think um, there is a... The thing that I'm interested in, in in response to your question about the future emerging philosophies... I think there is a really big existential question facing humanity about what it means to be human. I mean, partly that's driven by AI and, you know, we're sort of worrying about um, sort of these other consciousnesses, these other forms of living. Uh, another aspect of that is there's a lot of philosophy in terms of animal life and animal consciousness. And so a lot of that, you know, again, puts in question what's distinctive about being human, what's unique about me. There's the environmental crisis, a planetary crisis that we face that really is existential. You know, can we continue as a, as a race to survive on this planet? That raises all sorts of questions about the direction of life, purpose, the end goal of, of, of human life. It does, will it finish? Will human beings just not exist at some point in the future? Or will we find a way to navigate these things? These are all really big questions, I think, about what, what is... Our definitions, our understanding of what it means to be a human being, uh, things like meaning and purpose and um, uh, responsibility, you know, uh, moral responsibility, these are all things that really underpin a lot of how our societies function and these are all under challenge at the moment. So I think there will be a wave, I hope there will be a wave of philosophy uh, that really meets people where they're at on those questions. It becomes a very practical way of navigating people through those questions. And I think there's a lot to learn uh, from these teachings, and they will evolve. I think there's going to be these things don't stay stuck in the mud. They always change in, based on society, based on AI and technology change, technological change. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot to be said about the future and how we think about our existence and the the meaning of everything that we we're doing right now. What's the yeah. best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you, say hello, or just learn more yeah. about your books and your 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 writing? Yeah, thanks, uh, Barry, for that question. Look, what I'm really trying to promote at the moment is my Instagram community. I have an Instagram a handle at Neil Durrant, uh, my name, and you know that's a really interesting community of people where we you know the idea is a safe place to disagree you don't have to agree with everything that's there uh you if you've got views and you're going to be respectful of other people then throw them out there and we can talk about them i post twice a week there i'm currently doing a series on aversive emotions so uh last this week was shame um and uh what, i can't remember what i've got coming up next week but uh, it's the positive and the negative so i've paired you know pride with shame and joy with despair and and next week we move into it, uh, another another one of those pairings. So I'd love for people to come and, and join us on Instagram. I've also started a, a Substack newsletter, uh, which is also just my name, Neil Durrant, which is a way of getting those Instagram posts uh, sort of delivered directly to your email. But in time, you know, there'll be additional Substack-only uh, kind of content that I hope to develop. All of this is in view of, of an, a book, another book. My first book that came out this year is really for an academic audience, and it's you know, priced for libraries. Uh, so please feel free to go and buy one, but it may be out of your, your price range. What I'm working on is building 
this community of people so that I can uh, have a, a, a book come out in, my, in a couple of years that I'm working on at the moment on those eight the steps for living um, that uh, will hopefully bring this Nietzschean lifestyle uh, in a very relevant, practical way to people. So if you want to support me in that, the two things are Instagram and Substack. Uh, come and find me and join in. Thank you so much, Neil. really appreciate um, all of those insights. And I'm sure a lot of people will be listening to this and sort of rethinking in, in a positive light how they can live better lives and, and also make their mind make their own minds up about what path to follow because there is no right or wrong answer here. I think it's mm. for them to really understand, learn about these teachings and hopefully apply them to their uh, to their lives and hopefully live uh, much more fulfilling uh, lives uh, with knowing all of this. So, so thank you so much, and we'll put all the show notes below and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks, Barry. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.